Last week we looked at Pergamum. Pergamum, which means what? Does anybody remember what Pergamum means? Without those notes? Objectionable marriage. The church of the objectionable marriage. We talked about how that began around 312 AD with the Edict of Toleration of Constantine, and it was where the church married the state. And uh, with so many people working so hard for that, that very type of thing, that the, the separation of church and state is not a bad idea when, when handled right. Um, we looked before at Ephesus, the first of the seven churches, meaning desirable one or sweetheart. It's a term of endearment. We looked at Smyrna, which is myrrh, literally the crushed church. We talked about those things. And last week, we saw some uncomfortable images. Tied all the way back to Babylon's old mystery religion, founded by Nimrod, his wife Semiramis, and uh, she had that child you may recall named Tammuz. We look briefly at the pagan holiday of Saturnalia, the Yule log, the Yule, the child being named for, or word for a child, the Yule log, and the stand-up trees, and the wax candles, and the red-robed priests, all co-opted by the early church in the days of Constantine. And referred to several hundred years before by Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We looked at all these things and we messed around with Christmas. We got right in Christmas's face and some people came out of here not real thrilled with me for leaving you hanging. Well, what about Christians and Christmas? Are we truly celebrating a co-opted pagan holiday? Should we celebrate Christmas at all? And what was that sparkling tree I saw in your window last year, Rick? Well, (laughs) let's be clear about a couple of things. And I want to consider Christmas just for a moment since we're close to the holiday season. And we'll get on into Thyatira and it will all be connected here, I think, by the time we get to the end. But I want you to understand something. I think you know this, but let me just make sure it's clear. Christmas is not a holiday. Well, it's a holiday in terms of America and in terms of Western culture, but it's not a holy day. Christmas is not a day that you can find in the Bible anywhere. In fact, we're not told to celebrate the birth of Christ. It's not a biblical day where God says, do this, celebrate this, remember this. It's not important in those terms. What's important is the death, burial, the resurrection of Christ that saves us. Is there a problem with celebrating Christmas? Well, I don't think so. And I'll explain why. But you've got to remember that Christmas is man-made, not God-made. There's no verse in the Bible that can back up having a holiday to celebrate the birth of Christ. Besides the fact that it, as romantic a notion as it might be to celebrate the Christ child, and we think about mother and child and how precious and how sweet that is, as wonderful as that might all sound, remember that you are not saved by a child. We were saved by a man who was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. It was a man who hung on the cross. It was Jesus who by decision, as God in human flesh, chose to go to the cross, chose to die for us. It wasn't a baby. Don't keep Jesus in diapers because he didn't stay there. Understanding that Christmas is not a God-ordained holiday, the next question I would ask would be, well, what would Jesus do with Christmas? If Jesus were to show up today and move among us and live in our world for 33 years in today, America, 2005, what would he do with Christmas? How would he handle Christmas? Well, to answer that, we've got to travel back a bit. We can go back 165 years to before Jesus' birth. 165 B.C. 
A family of Jewish guerrilla fighters known as the Maccabees were around in those days. You may have heard the phrase Maccabees. The Maccabees, Maccabee is just the Hebrew word for hammer. This family was called the Hammer because they were a group, literally, of Jewish guerrilla fighters. And they fought hard against Rome and against an emperor who was a heinous emperor, a brutal emperor in Rome at the time in 165 AD, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was the first model of Antichrist. Now, if you were to study the book of Daniel, you could discover that. All of Daniel chapter 11 points toward this. The first half of the chapter talks about, quite a bit, Antiochus Epiphanes, what he would do in coming years in 165 AD. Now, remember Daniel, maybe you don't remember this, but it was written in 586. So, 400 plus years prior, Daniel's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to stand up and sit down because I'm a little... Got some sinus stuff going on tonight. It's hard to sit and teach. I, just, I get too excited. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was an evil Roman emperor. He was the first one to set up what Daniel called the abomination of desolation. He actually set up a statue to the Greek god Jupiter in the temple. He desolated the temple. He put basically pig soup all over the inside of the temple. Pig guts all mixed up with water splashed around inside the holy place to desecrate it. Well, the Maccabees, they, actually they were the Hasmonites, but they were led by a priest named Mattathias. Mattathias led the charge against Rome in guerrilla warfare, and they won. They actually, his five sons with him, especially his son Judah, rebelled against Antiochus Epiphanes and his Roman armies and literally drove them out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, Daniel prophesies. Again, 400 years earlier, Daniel said by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And he's specifically talking about the Maccabees. The people who know their God, they will, they will display strength. They will take action. And they did. The Jews recaptured the temple. They drove Antiochus out. They went to relight the lampstand and to reconsecrate the Holy of Holies. And they realized they had a problem. After lighting the lampstand with its seven candles on it, they realized we don't have any more oil. And it would take at least eight days to consecrate new oil to be put in the lampstand. And there was no way the oil that was there was going to last. They just knew it was going to burn out. But it didn't. For eight days, the fire burned on the lampstand. It stayed lit. The Jewish people would say miraculously. Jews today still commemorate the Festival of Lights. Or the Feast of Dedication. You may know it as Hanukkah. And that's the celebration of Hanukkah. It's based on that whole thing. You know, the menorah, it's got the seven candles with the one in the middle, the eighth candle, which is called the servant, and it lights all of the other seven. And Jews still celebrate that to remember what the Maccabees did in the driving out of Antiochus Epiphanes. History tells us, however, the Bible tells us that someone else celebrated this man-made holiday, the Feast of Dedication. God didn't ordain it. God didn't tell the Jewish people to celebrate it. He didn't say keep Hanukkah every year, and yet they did. Someone else did too. John chapter 10, verse 22 tells us the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah. So Jesus celebrated a man-made holiday. It was all right to celebrate. There was not a problem with this. And as a matter of fact, Jesus kind of co-opted the holiday. He used it for himself, for a, an opportunity 
to teach about himself. And we can learn from this. He said in John chapter 9 verse 5, he said, While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. As they're celebrating or preparing to celebrate the festival of lights. I'm the light of the world. And in John chapter 10 verse 24 it tells us the Jews gathered around him. And they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, listen to this, make yourself out to be God. Now, in the Jewish holiday where they subverted, where they drove out Antiochus Epiphanes, who claimed to be God, at this same holiday season, the Jews are pressing Jesus and he says, I am God. The difference between Antiochus, who claimed to be God, and Jesus, who claimed to be God, is Jesus is still very much alive today. Antiochus, not so much. The bottom line is this. I have no problem whatsoever with a man-made holiday that effectively subverts paganism while elevating Jesus. I think that's cool. I think it's great. You don't have to celebrate Christmas. If you want to be a Scrooge, that's okay. It's between you and you know your family. But... But the bottom line is this. It's a man-made holiday that can be used to focus on Jesus. And so we do. And so we will. Christmas Eve, we will have a Christmas Eve service here at the barn, and we will talk about Jesus. We will focus on Jesus. By the way, again, not Jesus the child, but Jesus the Savior. Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. I want to show you real quickly. I'm going to jump ahead here. But there is a... An interesting picture when you think about, and this is relevant for our study tonight, an interesting picture of what you would think of immediately as the Madonna and the child. This is actually a picture that's drawn from a Babylonian idol, Semiramis and Tammuz. And yet this same idol of sorts has been used down through history by the church to represent Madonna, the mother and Jesus, the Christ child. But it didn't originate with Mary and Jesus. It originated with Semiramis and Tammuz. So, just to be a little disturbing. One more thing about this Christmas situation. Rather than getting wrapped up in the day, no pun intended, fix your eyes on the glorified Christ, for He is God. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. Paul said it this way. He said, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so the choice regarding Christmas is respectfully yours. And if you choose to disregard the season, again, doesn't mean you're not saved. As a matter of fact, there are people who are good, strong Christians who just are not comfortable with celebrating Christmas. Okay. I'm not going to get in an argument about that. I'm going to celebrate Christmas. My kids would kill me if I didn't. Now, let's move on to the, what you might think of as the most insignificant location of the seven churches. And interestingly, it's a church that receives the longest letter. The church at Thyatira. Now, if you were picking out seven locations to send a letter, Thyatira would be unlikely because it was a smaller church. It was a smaller area. It was less significant. All the other towns, cities, had great significance to them. Thyatira, not so much. But I do want to warn you before we get any further tonight. 
We are getting into a section of church history which both tonight, next week, and not the week after that, but the, the last week that we talk about the churches can and may be offensive. I will do my best to let history speak for itself. Prophetically speaking, Thyatira lands squarely at 600 A.D. and runs all the way through to the second coming of Jesus, although its major emphasis will be 600 to 1500 A.D. The final four churches, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and understand this, all four of these churches still function as churches today. They had a start point in church history, but they have continued to function in the church today. Churches with these flavors, with these styles. They appear in chronological order in church history, but they didn't cease with the turn of events. The first three did. The first three did. But the last four still have representation. How do we know this? How do we know this to be true? Because in each one of the last four letters, Jesus speaks to these churches as literally present in the end time. He doesn't do that with the first three. The first three he talks about, in fact, look back at, uh, I guess, the message to Smyrna, where he says, Be faithful until death, and you will receive the crown of life. Assuming that Smyrna, prophetic Smyrna, Smyrna during the church age, Smyrna would die. Be faithful to death. You'll receive a crown of life. But it's in these last four churches where suddenly he's talking to Thyatira and he mentions the rapture. He mentions the tribulation. He mentions the millennium. All three are represented in the letter to Thyatira. In the letter to Sardis, the rapture, the tribulation, and the marriage feast of the Lamb are discussed for this church. Philadelphia <clears throat> promised to be raptured and promised to be saved from the tribulation, not to go through the tribulation at all. And Laodicea is warned of the tribulation and offered the millennium. So all four of these churches directly focus now toward the end times. They have a starting point some, somewhere in history, as we'll see going along, but they continue all the way until Jesus comes again. I think you'll see that clearly with Thyatira tonight. Now Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum represent sections again of the church age, which are now historically closed, but beginning with Thyatira in 600 AD, it's still wide open. I, I hope you'll understand as we go on here. So looking at verse 18, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Remember again, Jesus gives a partial revelation of himself. So we'll begin right there with verse 18. Listen to the tone of the words he uses. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. <laughs> Three things right off the bat to note here. Number one, he says the Son of God. This will be the only time in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus calls himself the Son of God. It's the only time he does it. Why is that? Well, there's good reason. He's clarifying whose son he is. He's not the son of Joseph, son of Mary. He's not the son of man even. He says the Son of God. Tuck that away. Remember that. We also see right off the bat in this partial revelation that he has eyes of fire and feet of bronze. <laughs> eyes of fire. Remember we talked about the fiery prophet. Feet of bronze. We talked about bronze is a symbol of judgment. And so here comes Jesus to Thyatira writing a letter to this little podunk church in an area that seems insignificant. But in the church age it is dramatically significant. And he comes with justice and with judgment. Justice in his eyes, judgment in his feet, fire and burnished bronze, both in the Bible speak of judgment. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 on through 15, Jesus, or, or Paul says the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. The fire will test the quality of the work. Now a little Jewish historical insight. You know, we've recently been through the book of Exodus, the importance of bronze. The altar was made of bronze. The altar, the place that judgment took place, was made of bronze. Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. We also will be reading about, when we get into the book of Numbers, the bronze serpent. God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent. Why? So that the people can look at the serpent, and if they will believe in the Lord, they can be saved from a plague of snakes that are biting and killing them. It's an interesting story. That's in Numbers chapter 21. But in both cases, bronze uh, focuses on or points out judgment. And it's interesting that Jesus, by the way, compared the cross to the bronze serpent. He said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And some have said, well, that's weird. Well, why would Jesus compare himself on the cross to the bronze serpent? The serpent spoke of sin. The serpent speaks of Satan. The serpent speaks of, of evil and, and wrongdoing. Well, Jesus compared himself to that serpent because when he went on to the cross, he became sin for us. He became all that was wrong in the world. All He took it all on himself. It was the perfect symbol for what Jesus would do on the cross. He took the judgment. So here comes the Lord and he is about to give a heavy word of judgment. Son of God with eyes of fire, feet of burnished bronze. But he begins with a positive affirmation. Verse 19, he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. It's interesting, he says, Thyatira, I find six good works in you. I can list off six things about you that are good. Your works are good. Your love is good. Your faith, your servants, your perseverance. And number six, all these things are increasing lately, which is good. Six things. Six. Interesting. Six is the number of a man. And the trend here with Thyatira is they are very human. They are very humanly focused. They are very works-based. The focus in Thyatira is on their works. And you will notice this trend as we continue on looking at Thyatira, not only as a historical church, but as a prophetic church. They are focused on works. Again, you might say, well, these are good. They're positive things here. They are. Please remember the positive as we head into the negative. Verse 20. But I have this against you. Jesus begins now his corrective accusation. I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So that they commit acts of immorality. And eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. Jesus says. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Who is Jezebel? And why is she mentioned here? What's the deal with this woman? Well, first of all, before we answer that, let's think about Thyatira and get a little bit of Thyatira background. Um, it's entirely likely, if we just look at the biblical record, that Thyatira, the church, was founded by a woman. It's very likely that's, that's where it happened. In Acts chapter 16... Paul is on his second missionary journey. And the chapter is a fascinating chapter. There are several things that happen all within this chapter in the book of Acts that all play in together. Paul 
is on this missionary journey and doors are closing right and left. He's headed out with the word of the Lord and he wants to bring it to the cities in Asia and up into Greece and the doors are slamming shut everywhere he turns. But he has a vision. The Lord gives Paul a vision of a man. And this man is just saying, come and help us. Come and help us. So Paul, after having this vision, the man is in Macedonia. So he says, well, that's where we're supposed to go. And they head for Macedonia. They didn't have, I guess, any other plans. They weren't sure nothing else was working. God said, here's a man. And the man said, come to Macedonia. So Paul said, let's go. Now I think, personally, if you're just want a little extra tidbit here, I think the man that he saw in the vision was the Philippian jailer. Because at the end of Acts chapter 16, he will come face to face with the Philippian jailer in that very dramatic story where he saves the jailer, the jailer and his entire family are baptized, and the Lord saves them. But what's interesting is when Paul goes into Macedonia, the first person he meets is not a man, it's a woman. Which kind of indicates that sometimes we may have visions from the Lord, we may have calls or drawings from the Lord, and when we go to where we think he wants us, it's not what we thought it would be. Maybe not at first. Oftentimes, God will take us somewhere and en route to what He has called us to have us stop for a season or a time to deal with something else. So Paul goes into Macedonia looking for the man, looking for this guy who said, come help us. And what happens is on on a certain day, it tells us he went down to the water and there he ran into a group of women who were praying together and talking together and they begin to share Jesus. Acts chapter 16, verse 14 tells us, A woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And the Bible says, And she prevailed upon us. This woman, this seller of purple fabrics, she was a good businesswoman. She, she talked Paul and his companions into sticking around and staying a little bit longer. She was sharp. She showed, sold purple dyes and fabrics. Purple was Thyatira's number one commodity. And it was a huge commodity in Rome, especially among the royals. It was an incredibly expensive reddish-purple dye that they would extract from shellfish. And it was so expensive because you could get one drop of this dye from a shellfish. Just think how much work that would take just to get enough dye to dye some clothes or to dye some fabric. So it was very popular, very expensive for the royals of Rome. And it was produced there. The only place you could get this reddish-purple dye, these purple fabrics, would be out of Thyatira. And Lydia most likely returned to Thyatira and planted the church there, founded it. It's very interesting how she and her whole family are baptized. Her husband's not mentioned. The men of the household are not mentioned. But Lydia is this woman of great faith. And many historians believe she went back to Thyatira. And that's how the church got started there. We have no other record of how the church ended up there. Except possibly through this Lydia. Now, the church in Thyatira may have been founded by a woman. But eventually, according to Jesus, it floundered by a woman. A woman got things going, got the ball rolling, had tremendous faith, but another woman was tearing the church in Thyatira apart, leading it terribly astray. Jezebel. Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is not a name you hear a lot these days. Women are not going right out, husbands and wives, and naming their children, their daughters, Jezebel. You don't hear a lot of Judas either. Those are two names, I guess, you know, just not real popular. But it's probably not even her real name. 
It's definitely an allusion to Jezebel in the Old Testament, and she was infamous in Old Testament history. I'm going to stop just for a moment and share with you, I'm going to give you a lot of information tonight on Thyatira. Some of it is worth writing down, some you may just want to listen. A lot of the information I give you, especially in the way of quotes, is just to back up so you understand what I'm saying. That I don't have a bias here one way or another, but I've really tried to look at scripture and history and, and piece this together. So that's what we're looking at tonight. But thinking about Jezebel, some things just to know about her. She was the one who went on that murderous rampage against the prophets of God. And Jezebel killed hundreds of the Lord's prophets to the point that the prophet Obadiah hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two different caves. Fifty in one cave and fifty in another. Obadiah was hiding them from Jezebel because her intent was to wipe out the prophets of Jehovah, the prophets of the Lord. She was the one who was hunting down Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet of God. One of two prophets in Israel who were considered the greatest. Elijah and Moses, who, by the way, both of whom I think we'll see showing up in the book of Revelation later on. But the great Elijah ran for his life from Jezebel. Scared to death of her. You may remember the story. He ended up in the, in the mountains himself, up in a cave, frightened to death. And the Lord said, what are you doing? He said, I'm not going back down there. I'm the only one that's left. I'm the last one. And God said, no, I, I have a remnant. I have a remnant. Jezebel was the one who, um, who, who chased down Elijah after he had slaughtered the prophets of Baal. She was the daughter, by the way, of a man named Ethbaal. Ethbaal was the king of the Sidonians and the high priest of Ashtaroth. And we mentioned this last week. Ashtaroth is just another name for Semiramis. Same goddess, same worship. The worship of Ashtaroth was made by sacrifices and orgies and groves of trees in the high places. Ashtaroth was the goddess of sensuality and fertility. And Ashtaroth is specifically, and you may want to note this, in the Bible, specifically called the Queen of Heaven. This title in the scriptures is given to the idol Ashtaroth. Jeremiah, in fact, flipping your Bibles over to the book of Jeremiah for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 44 is where you're going to need to end up. Jeremiah 44, about verse 15. While you're flipping there, let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. Jeremiah 7, 18 tells us the children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. He's talking about Ashtaroth, the queen of heaven, the pagan uh, goddess. Jeremiah chapter 44 in verse 15 and following. Then all the women who were aware that, or all the men, sorry, all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Papros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah, saying, As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that is proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then, listen to this, then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. We talked about Molech this morning. 
and the God who promised pleasure if you'll sacrifice to him. Prosperity if you'll sacrifice to him. And the same was thought of Ashtaroth. And so the people were giving their sacrifices, pouring out their drink offerings to Ashtaroth because they felt that that would make them prosperous. Verse 18. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. Verse 19, And said the women, When we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it without our husbands that we made her for her sacrificial cakes and in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? So you see this Ashtaroth was a huge stumbling block for the Jews. And she was called very clearly, according to scripture, the Queen of Heaven. If you have thoughts about, if you wonder about this title, Queen of Heaven, it's only applied to Ashtaroth in the scripture and to nobody else. Why are you telling us this, Rick? We'll get there. Jezebel, back to Jezebel. She was a devout worshiper of Ashtaroth and Baal and a great seducer of Israel. She married Ahab, who was Israel's most wicked, queen, wicked king at the time. And Jezebel sought to acquire, and this is interesting, she sought to acquire land. 1 Kings chapter 21, if you flip over there for a moment, let me read something else. Story about Jezebel, and again, it plays into where we're going. I've got to give you a bunch of things, and then we'll get to where understanding what Thyatira really is about. But 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. A little story about Ahab and Jezebel, an interesting story, an applicable story. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab, the wicked king, had his palace. He had all he could possibly want, but next door to him, there from his palace, he could see this nice little garden owned by Naboth. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, and because it's close beside my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard than that in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Oh, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This had been passed down for generations. It belonged to him. It was his father's vineyard, his father's father's vineyard. He couldn't sell it. It was too personal. So Ahab, love this, came into the house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance, my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face and ate no food. He pouted. He was having a little Ahab pity party. But Jezebel, verse 5, his wife came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen and you're not eating food? And so he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard or your, for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in my place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Watch this. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. This was the action of Jezebel and they did. 
she sought basically to acquire land. It was acquisition by, well, for lack of a better word, inquisition. Acquisition by inquisition. The land Ahab wanted became his through a mock trial, through a setup. And Naboth was stoned to death through this mock trial, and Ahab ended up with the land. Who made it all happen? Jezebel did. Jezebel got it. So who is this Jezebel in Thyatira? Going back to Revelation chapter 2, who is this Jezebel? She, she was likely a woman, again, probably not named Jezebel, but likely a woman who was stirring things up, or possibly a movement following the same pattern. What pattern? The pattern of spiritual fornication. Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the daughter who would wipe out the prophets of the Lord and bring in paganism, the worship of Ashtaroth, the worship of Baal. This is what she was about. She was also about power. She was about acquisition of land. She was about pagan things. And what is Jesus going to do about her? Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into, and here it is, great tribulation. This is the first time the tribulation is mentioned, and Jesus mentions it in connection to Thyatira. There are those of this section of the church age, still alive and well today, who will be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children, he says, with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give each one of you according to your deeds. Thyatira, you're the church of deeds. I will treat you accordingly. I will give to you according to your deeds. If there is no repentance, they will go through the great tribulation. Suddenly Jesus again, he's talking about the tribulation. Why? Because we finally reached that point in church history, which refers to a church that will be around at the time of, and will go through the tribulation. Oh, wait a minute, I, I thought you said with the rapture of the church, the church doesn't go through the tribulation. No, the true church, the pure church, the church that God knows will not go through the tribulation. But I imagine that there will be a Sunday morning following the rapture where people will be showing up at churches wondering why no one else is there. Asking the pastor why no one else is there. <laughs> Gang, the church, the church is very simply those who God has called those who have accepted Jesus as Lord. Those who the Lord has added daily. Acts chapter 2 tells us at the end of the chapter, he says the Lord was adding daily those who were being saved. Well, how do we know who's saved? Well, God knows who's saved. I know I'm saved. I hope you know you're saved. You can very easily know you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the test. Not the works, not the deeds. It's the faith we have in Jesus. But there are tragically many people in the church today who warm the pews, who have absolutely no relationship with Jesus. And without relationship, there is not salvation. Salvation is based on relationship. Jesus himself said people are going to come to me and say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. He will bring in, he will save, he will catch up those in relationship with him. That's the key, not the deeds that we do. What, by the way, are the deep things of Satan? The deep things of Satan. Verse 24 I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, 
who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. The deep things, that's a, a Greek word, a single word for deep things, it's bathos. Bathos is the Greek word there. It means hidden things. And it speaks directly of the esoteric mysteries of the Babylonian mystery religion. Where the Babylonian priests would say, we alone know the bathos. We alone have the keys. We know the deep things. You don't. You're just the common folk. We, the priests, understand what you can't possibly understand. You have to learn from us and listen to us. You can't get this on your own. Which is why, by the way, I continue to say, have your Bibles here, have your Bibles open, and you test everything that is taught in this church or in any church. Don't you dare count on the pastor to tell you everything and just buy into it hook, line, and sinker. Now, I'm not saying that I would intentionally deceive or desire to deceive in any way, shape, or form, but I'm a human being. Don't trust me. You trust the Word of God and you test everything by the Word of God. But the baffles, these people are saying, we have the mysteries. We have the secrets. And the high priests in Babylon would say the same thing while the lay people remained in the dark. An interpreter... The high priest was called the interpreter. He had a special name, by the way, I'll tell you in a minute. And the interpreter held the deep things in Babylonian mystery religion. What are we really talking about here with all of this? Prophetically, this letter speaks of none other than the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholicism. Circa 600 A.D. to the present day. Sardis, by the way, and let me just say this, Sardis is next. Sardis will speak of the church of the Reformation, and Jesus has nothing good to say about Sardis. It's the one letter where he has nothing, well, Laodicea as well. Nothing good, no positive, not a single one. And it refers specifically to the Reformation. So, show up next week, and if you're not offended this week, we'll try to offend you next week. An equal opportunity offender. But first, a positive note on Roman Catholicism is something to consider. Historically, the service of the Catholic Church is not only commendable, it is almost unsurpassed among churches. Few churches have served and accomplished and done in the world what the Roman Catholic Church has done. Amazing things. The work of Mother Teresa in Calcutta, just one small example. The hospitals, the hospices, the active serving around the world and in history. The Catholic Church's devotion to mercy and to care is amazing. And Jesus says in the letter to Thyatira, Hey, I know. I know your deeds. The love, the faith, the service, the perseverance. And your deeds of late, they're getting better. You're working even harder. I know this. I see this. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, Thyatira. I know your deeds. But Jesus lowers the boom on this church. He comes down very hard with the eyes of fire and the feet of bronze. And he says this church will go into the great tribulation if you don't repent of your deeds. What kinds of things are we talking about historically? Let me give you five areas of concern that will wrap up this study. Bring it all together. Five areas of concern, things that you can jot down to kind of think this through. And I, by the way, would encourage you to to check out a couple of books that are excellent for study. One of them is a very difficult read. The other one, not so much, but packed with information and backed up all the way down the line. The first book is called The Two Babylons. The Two Babylons. The Two Babylons... Again, is a hard book to read. It was written in the mid-1800s. It's a very well-documented book about Roman Catholicism and the connection between a lot of what you see in the Catholic Church with Babylonian paganism. That picture that I showed you is, is just one of many points of connection. I'll share a few things here in just a few moments. But it's called The Two Babylons. And um, oh, what's the author's name? 
tell you what, if you do an internet search and just type in Two Babylons, it'll come up. Okay, there's no other book named The Two Babylons, but it's very interesting and uh, a tough, tough read, but, but very interesting. The other one is a very gutsy book that was written back in 1994 by a man named Dave Hunt. It's called The Woman Rides the Beast. The Roman Catholic Church and the Last Days. It was published by Harvest House. It's amazing that it even got published at all, but it's an excellent book and great for a lot of background information on what we're talking about right here. Here are the five areas of concern. Number one, number one, Thyatira and transubstantiation. Thyatira and transubstantiation. Now these five areas I'm going to give you are just examples. There's so much more we could talk about. We just don't have time. We're going to kind of gloss over uh, as we get through Thyatira. Thyatira and transubstantiation. Something to understand and to note. And this is one of the most stunning names of these seven churches. Thyatira. Thyatira. Rick, how do you know this has anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church? And why would you pin it to that? And where do you think you're getting off here? Well, the name itself, Thyatira, literally means continual sacrifice. Continual sacrifice. Continual sacrifice. What does that have to do with Catholicism? Transubstantiation. Is the act of continual sacrifice. In Catholicism it is believed that communion actually and physiologically transforms. And I'm not talking about all areas of Catholicism. But mainstream it actually transforms in the body into the body and blood of Jesus. And that's called transubstantiation. When you take the bread, when you drink the wine or the juice, it becomes the literal physical body. It actually changes in you to become the body of Christ. Everything in Catholicism revolves around the Mass. And everything in the Mass revolves around the taking of communion. Now, that's not a bad thing. We take communion every Sunday at the bridge. And our focus on worship is to focus down to that point of taking communion. To remember the crucifixion of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus. But it is not a continual sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that happened, past tense. This doctrine was pronounced in the Catholic Church as doctrine in 1215 A.D. Transubstantiation. But Jesus was very clear about his sacrifice. It is not a continual one. It was once and for all. John 19, verse 30. We read this verse this morning. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It's done. He will speak those words, by the way. In the book of Revelation, I believe it's in chapter 19, as we get down to the end, he'll say it's done. It's finished. Romans chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Transubstantiation. Again, there's incredible documentation in the book, The Woman Rides the Beast, and you can read more about that and what it means and how this, how this idea of transubstantiation even came to be put into place in the Catholic Church. Second thing, second thing, and this uh, will bring you back to Jezebel and Naboth and the story of, of Naboth's murder. The second thing is increase and acquisition. Increase, I'm sorry, not acquisition, inquisition. Increase and Inquisition. The Roman Catholic Church in the period between 600 and 1500 A.D. amassed huge, massive amounts of wealth. Don't know if you knew this, but it is the single wealthiest entity in the world today. The Roman Catholic Church. Owning more in terms of land holdings, in terms of artwork, in terms of gold, in terms of investments. The Roman Catholic Church, check this out, has more than any other single nation in the world, Roman Catholicism is richer. 
Now why do we tell that story of Naboth with the Jezebel connection? Well, Jesus' language to Thyatira prophetically is clear. Think about what Jezebel did. She killed the innocent by means of an inquisition for the purpose of gaining land. And that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church was doing historically in the times of the inquisition. Land acquisition, going after people, doing amazing, bloody, horrendous things to gain riches for the church. Here's a quote from uh, Woman Rides the Beast, Dave Hunt's book. The punishments of the Inquisition did not cease when the victim was burned to ashes or immured for life in the Inquisition dungeons. His relatives were reduced to beggary by the law that all of his possessions were forfeited. The system offered unlimited opportunities for looting. This source accounts for the revolting practice of what has been called corpse trials. That the practice of confiscating the property of condemned heretics, which was productive of many acts of extortion, rapacity, and corruption, no man was safe whose wealth might arouse cupidity or whose independence might provoke revenge. If a man was wealthy, they could be the target of the church. And many of the, accusi- of the accusations during the Inquisition were trumped up. Trumped up charges that would take down a wealthy man, either condemning him to the dungeons or to death, and all that was his became the churches. Increase and Inquisition. Number three. Number three, Peter and the papacy. Peter and the papacy. I mentioned before that the Babylonian mystery pagan religion had a high priest who was called the interpreter. A special title, the interpreter. It's interesting. The interpreter interpreted, remember, the bathos, those deep things, those mysterious things that no one else could know. Only the interpreter could know these things. But there's a fascinating connection to Peter and not Peter the Apostle. The first official pope was Boniface III in 607 A.D. Now, of course, the Catholic Church of today will maintain that the papacy began with the Apostle Peter. The problem is that the first 65 popes, including Peter, Peter, (laughs) Peter, that's great, including Peter, lacked any kind of verification. Even in Roman Catholicism, even in the Catholic Church, they have to be honest and say we cannot verify that the first 65 names on the papal list were actually considered popes. It wasn't until Boniface in 607 that they could actually say this guy legitimately, he was pope and we all saw him as that. Let me give you a quote from the New Catholic Encyclopedia published by the Catholic Church or University, Catholic University of America. They said, quote, it must frankly be admitted that by Biases or deficiencies make it impossible to determine in certain cases whether the claimants were popes or anti-popes. Not even sure. 65 on the list. Speaking, by the way, of anti-popes, this is interesting, Constantine. Constantine, who was not on the papal list, called himself Vicarius Christi, or Vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ was the name that Constantine took for himself. I am the Vicar of Christ, meaning he was a representative of Christ, or more boldly, what the word Vicar really means is another Christ, an anti-Christ. This is what Constantine took for his own name, Vicar of Christ. There are three names, by the way, which were ancient names that popes in the Catholic Church will still use today. Vicar of Christ is one. Another one is Bishop of Bishops. And the third one, which we mentioned last week, is Pontifex Maximus, which was the name born or or worn by the high priest of Babylonian paganism. Pontifex Maximus. It was co-opted again by Constantine in those early days of the church and state marriage. 
And it, it was used and held on to for the church. It was Damasus, or Damasus, the bishop of Rome in 366 AD, who first took the title Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus for himself. Now listen to this, and this is interesting. This is where Peter comes into the, the process here. Pontifex Maximus was the title worn by the interpreter of the high priest, the high priest of the Babylonian pagan religion. He would call himself the Pontifex Maximus. He also had another title, the interpreter. The interpreter, pronounced in the ancient Chaldee Babylonian language as the Peter. He was called the Peter. Long before Peter came along, in Babylonian paganism, the high priest was called the interpreter, the Peter, in the Chaldee language. So I guess you could say that a Peter was the first pope. Infallibility of the popes, by the way, was declared in 1870, which is interesting. It took 1870 years to get to the point where they would say that the popes were infallible. But the history of the papacy is replete with abominable error. Another quote, Catholic historian and former Jesuit priest uh, Peter de Rosa writes the following. He says, Popes had mistresses of 15 years of age. They were guilty of incest and sexual perversions of every sort. They had innumerable children, were murdered in the very act of adultery by jealous husbands who found them in bed with their wives. In the old Catholic phrase, why be holier than the Pope? Sexually speaking, history is full of sayings which mock the papal false claim to celibacy. Sayings like these. The holiest hermit has a whore. These are all quotes, by the way. I didn't make these up. Rome has more prostitutes than any other city because it has more celibates. <laughs> and Pius II, and again I quote, Pius II declared that Rome was the only city run by bastards. Speaking specifically of the sons of popes and cardinals who didn't have married parents. Innocent III in 1215 AD was the pope who declared the doctrine of transubstantiation, the body and blood of Christ. This came from Innocent III who was known historically as the bloodiest pontiff in the history of Rome because of his murderous pursuit of wealth and power. Interesting. Why would anyone believe the teachings of these men to be infallible? When John the Baptist was on death row, he sent word to Jesus asking if he was really the Messiah, if he was the one that they should be following. Is he the one that John thought he might be? He, he was having some moments of, of doubt there, some worry, some concern. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to John's disciples, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. That the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And in John 10.25, Jesus said, The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And I've said this before, if you want to know where religion really came from, look at its founder. Look at the one who, who bore that religion. Look at the one who began that system of faith. Look there. That's where you'll find the truth about that faith. The truth about that religion or even that church. Look at the founder. If you look at Jesus, his works, he says, testifies of him. Do the Pope's works testify of them? Listen to a few of the things declared as Catholic dogma by Popes whose actions did not indicate infallibility. Let me give you a quick list here. I can give this to you later if you want to jot it down and move very quickly. In 786 AD, they proclaimed as doctrinal the worship of images and relics. You could worship images. 
The second commandment says you shall not make an idol or any graven image. You shall not worship that. Because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And yet in 786, a pope declared this. Use of holy water was declared in 850 A.D. Canonization of dead saints in 995 A.D. The celibacy of the priesthood in 1079 A.D. And, and somewhat recently we've seen how effective the celibacy of the priesthood has been. Prayer beads in 1090 A.D. The Inquisition in 1184 A.D. The sale of indulgences in 1190 A.D. Indulgences. Have you heard of this? Maybe you're familiar with indulgences. You can buy an indulgence and sin later pay now you're going to go out and get drunk Friday night go ahead and buy forgiveness for that sin ahead of time or or buy someone's way out of purgatory or at least buy down their time in purgatory indulgences transubstantiation which I mentioned in 1215 AD the Bible this is interesting in 1229 AD the Bible was forbidden to the laity to the common man in the Catholic Church of that time, it was proclaimed the common man may not have access to the Scriptures. Only the priests know the deep things. Only the priests can explain Scripture. Therefore, the common man is too stupid to figure it out. We don't want Bibles in everybody's hands. The doctrine of purgatory was pronounced in 1439 A.D. And then in 1545 A.D., tradition, church tradition, was granted equal authority with the scriptures. The way we've done things, our traditions, are as authoritative as the Bible itself. Gang, I don't mean to be standing up here in Catholic bashing, but this is history. And by the way, these things all, again, all of those things on the list I gave you have their roots in Babylonian paganism. On the papal coat of arms, which is still used today, there are two keys. Two keys which which cross together. And they have names. The keys do. On the papal coat of arms, the keys are called Janus and Sibylle. Janus and Sibylle. And they represented to the pagan population in Rome the true power of the gods. Interesting that in the old cult of Babylon, the interpreter, the Peter of the Bathos, the interpreter of the deep things would use two mystical keys to figure out the deep things of Babylonian paganism. And those two keys were called Janus and Sibylle. And they're still on the papal coat of arms today. Wouldn't people be able to figure all these things out by simply reading their Bibles? Exactly. Exactly. Which brings us to number four. Bible study versus the bathos. Bible study versus the deep things. In other words, in 1229, when the Bible was completely forbidden to lay people, what happened was called chaining the Bible to the pulpit. Tie up the Bible to up front, to where the only person who can explain it is the priest. He's the only one who really understands these things, who really knows these things, so you really ought to just listen to him. Don't bring your Bibles. I'll tell you something that concerns me in the church today, and I'm not talking about Catholicism, I'm talking about the church in general, is the lack of use of the Bible. Getting used to not even having to bring it at all. Because the pastor will tell us what to believe. He'll tell us what to think. We'll jot down a few notes and go home happy. No big deal. What do we need to... I mean, it's a big book. (laughs) It's confusing. It's not. It's not. Gang, if I can figure this out, you can figure this out. Trust me. There's not a great deal of mental power that goes into this. It's just study. Read it. Know it for yourselves. Well, anyway... A hundred years before the Bible was forbidden to lay people, in 1127 A.D., there was a Bible study movement in the church. 
A huge movement. A, a group of people led by a man named Peter Waldo. They were called the Waldensians. But the church in Rome launched a wave of persecution against their own. Against Christians in this group, these Bible students called Waldensians, 2.5 million Waldensians were killed for their participation in home Bible study by the church in Rome. We will tell you what to believe. We, we are the interpreters of the deep things. Among many who were martyred by the church in Rome, in 1384, John Wycliffe was killed for his refusal to stop getting the Bible into the hands of his countrymen. And even today we still have the Wycliffe Bible Society whose mission is to get the Bible into people's hands. In 1415, John Huss, who was a student of Wycliffe, was burned alive. In 1555, and this one's interesting to me, the bishops Ridley and Latimer, these two bishops were burned at the stake for their refusal to stop teaching and giving people copies of the scriptures. As the fires were being lit, Latimer said to Ridley, Today they are igniting a candle that will never go out. Will never go out. No wonder this period of time in history is called the Dark Ages. Interesting. John chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus spoke again. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I get concerned even in the church today when people talk about the mysteries. When people talk about the mystical things. Because Jesus came to bring us light and revelation. That's what this whole book is about. We've talked about the very name revelation. The revealing, the unveiling, that you might know and understand my word. Not that you would go about in the dark. Not that you would wonder, well, what does it really mean? Ooh, that's mysterious. That is the stuff of Satan, my friends. The mysterious things. You will see this more vividly the further we get into Revelation and as people begin to chase after the workings of Antichrist and his mysterious workings. Jesus is not a God of mystery. He brings the light of life. Matthew 5 verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now listen, and don't miss this. There were and there are people in the Catholic Church, as in Thyatira, who do not buy into these things. There are saved Catholic people all throughout the Catholic Church who love Jesus, who love the Lord, who study their Bibles, and who will be saved. They don't buy into the power, they don't buy into the secrecy, and they don't buy into the idolatry that has been proclaimed in Roman Catholicism. Jesus says in verse 24, I say to you and to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you, Jesus says. You're all right. The tragedy is that the deep things have deep roots, and these deep roots go back to Pergamum's objectionable marriage, and they go back further still to Babylon itself. I have one more thing to tell you. Flip over to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 3, which we will study, but it's going to take us a few weeks to get there, so let me give you a heads up. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. John speaking here says, He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, having full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple, like Thyatira, 
purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead was a name, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw, verse 6, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, the Waldensians, John Huss, the Wycliffe, the others. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And to find out what that is, we'll get there when we get to Revelation chapter 17. But why? Why a woman? Why a woman that rides this beast? Why this picture? Number five, the concern, one of the greatest concerns that is connected today, even to Roman Catholicism, is the Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven. Who does the Queen of Heaven speak of in the Bible? Ashtaroth, which we just saw. There is no other connection to anyone else in the Bible when the phrase the Queen of Heaven is used. It is Ashtaroth. Let me give you a few excerpts from Dave Hunt's book. Again, quoting, The most authoritative book written on Catholicism's Virgin Mary is by Cardinal and St. Alphonsus de Liguori. It's titled The Glories of Mary. It is a virtual compendium of what the great saints of the Roman Catholic Church have had to say about Mary down through the centuries. This, the chapter headings are staggering, crediting Mary with attributes, abilities, titles, and functions that belong to Christ alone. Here are some of them. Mary, our life, our sweetness. Mary, our hope. Mary, our help. Mary, our advocate. Mary, our guardian. Mary, our salvation. Here's a sample of Liguori's quotes of what the saints have said concerning Mary's role in salvation. They've said, sinners receive pardon by Mary alone. He falls and is lost who is, has not recourse to Mary. Mary is called, quote, the gate of heaven because no one can enter that blessed kingdom without passing through her. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 7, I assure you, I am the gate for the sheep. He said in verse 8, All others who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. Time magazine comments that according to modern popes, Mary is, quote, the Queen of Heaven. The most recited Catholic prayer, the rosary, concludes with this final petition. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Our life, our sweetness, our hope, to thee we do cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. The only queen of heaven is Ashtaroth and not Mary. And what did Jesus what did Jesus say about Mary? Matthew chapter 12, verse 47. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother, your brothers, they're standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. That would almost be blasphemous to someone who held Mary in the place of the Queen of Heaven. 
Luke chapter 11 verse 27. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you are nursed. And Jesus said on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. If you want to truly honor Mary, something you can do is listen to the very last thing that she had said that we have recorded in Scripture. The last phrase spoken by Mary, her last recorded words, what were they? John chapter 2 verse 5, she says of Jesus, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says, do it. The last time Mary appears in the Scriptures is in Acts chapter 2 as she's silent. She doesn't say a word. Interesting. So we get down to the end of Thyatira. And we end up with a practical recommendation. We're almost done. Verse 24. I know I say that every week. I'm just trying to give you some hope. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deed until my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Jesus says in his practical recommendation, he says, repent, hold fast. Interesting, what does he say? Until I come. Why? Because this church will be around when Jesus comes. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. Again, it's the first time that Jesus' promise of His coming is put down in these letters. And He says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds, the big problem in Thyatira, and I would translate the problem in Roman Catholicism, is the focus on deeds. It's the focus on works. It's the focus on what you can do and what you need to do and the things you need to keep to be saved. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. You focus on my deeds. You keep my deeds. I love when Jesus was asked, what does it mean to believe in God? And he said, believing in God is, or, or what does it mean to do the works of God? And he says, the works of God are to believe, to believe in the one in whom he has sent. Your salvation, gang, is from one place alone, and it's only performed by one who did the deeds necessary to make your reservation for heaven. That's the practical recommendation. The eternal motivation, verse 26, he says, he who overcomes, And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He's speaking now of the millennium. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, if you overcome, if you will hold fast to my deeds, I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to give you authority over the nations. And that authority over the nations is a promise of Jesus. It will happen. It's a royal priesthood, a real priesthood. We'll see this pop up several times in the book of Revelation. An authentic ruling and reigning with Jesus as our Lord. Not a ruling by inquisition. Not a ruling by manipulation or power or strength. But a ruling under the authority of Jesus Christ. And he says this. He says, I'll give you the morning star. I'll give you the morning star. In the Old Testament, Malachi verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus is called the Son of Righteousness. And in the New Testament, He is called the morning star. 2 Peter 1.19 and Revelation 22.16. Either way, whether He is the Son of Righteousness or the morning star, Jesus is the light of the world. 
He is the one, whether shining like midday in the millennium or rising to call the church home before the darkest hours of the tribulation, Jesus is the light. And what he says is, I'm going to give you the morning star. It's not some kind of trinket, it's him. This morning we talked about our joy is the Lord. He is the reward. It's not another reward, it's the Lord. He's our reward. He is our joy. And Jesus says, I will give you myself. Now, very last thing and we're done. Verse 29 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I was kind of flipping around, looking in Revelation. I ran across something that is fascinating to me. It's one of those little nuggets, one of those very encouraging things. We've talked about the rapture, and and I've had many conversations with people. Why do you believe in the rapture? Why do you believe we're going to be caught up? And I, I want you to understand it's not because of one scripture. It's not because of one verse or even a couple of verses. It's because of the preponderance of evidence that the church will not be here in the tribulation. Let me give you one more. Every one of the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus ends the same. He says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at Revelation 13 verse 9. He uses the phrase again. It's the last time the phrase is used in the Bible. The only time it's used in Revelation outside of the seven letters. And Jesus says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And that's it. He omits. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 13, the church is not present. The church is not there. He is just speaking to the world at that point. If you have an ear, listen up. Listen. He doesn't say, listen to what the Spirit says because the Spirit is not there. He doesn't say to the churches because the church is not there. We've been pulled out. We have, we're gone. We're tucked safely away in heaven. It's where I plan to be. It's where I hope you plan to be as well.